0: podcast the only book club podcast that once had a bathtub with a waterfall in it it was a small little humble one yes but very pleasing to the eyes and ears and i remember distinctly running my hand under it letting it kind of wash over kind of break up the flow of the water very satisfying to have that in the bathtub amanda
1: yeah i mean what great imagery too i love the the idea of like the hand going through the water like that wonderful
0: it was it was very soothing, and I—that was probably the last time in my life I took baths. I don't know if that's a habit that you or anyone in your family's into, but I—I've abandoned the bath time completely. It's efficiency of a shower for me, or bust at this point.
1: Yeah, unless I need to relax.
0: Hmm. <laughs> and yeah, that's the people do talk about that, right? Hot tubs. People use that as kind of—I don't find being in water relaxing to me. Mm. I love being clean, but I don't find just waiting around. The relaxing part to me is getting the PJs on after. And like laying in bed or something. That's the part that I find serene. Not in the water. Anyway, mm-hmm. to each their own. If you're listening to us, wondering why are we talking so much about taking baths, it is because <laughs> you've tuned into the Lightly Literary podcast. We are here today to discuss a book in depth and analyze the first half of it as a book club episode. The book we'll be discussing today is called Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Te Yamashita. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on social media at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. We're on Facebook and Instagram, so check us out there. Follow us for updates and other social media posts. Please rate and review us on any podcast platform where you found this, deep in the depths of the internet somewhere, wherever you've dusted us off. We appreciate all the recommendations and love that you can send our way. And as I mentioned, you're joining us today for a deep dive into this Book, which is hard to categorize. It's kind of nonfiction kind of short stories. It's, it's the first time I feel like I want to describe something as musings and not feel weird about saying it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it really
0: does feel like a person's whims.
1: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great description of this, actually. It
0: re- yeah, it really kind of is. I think for better and worse, we'll get into the our thoughts on the book shortly. Amanda, you chose this book, and I cannot for the life of me remember what the prompt was. We do our <laughs> book clubs based on prompts, so one person gives the other person a prompt, and then they pick accordingly. Um I don't know what the prompt was for this book I haven't short pulled stories for maybe you just in case
1: <laughs> Go ahead
0: yeah I think it w- well I don't remember go ahead tell me It's
1: um any collection of small parts or pieces so it could be short story yes. collection anthology poetry essays There we go um, Yeah So you had only chose... chose longer things that's why I was <laughs> Yeah trying that's to true force it was hand. all like novels mm-hmm. and memoirs yeah. yeah 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 So we needed something to to break it up um I chose this uh because it was like short stories, but it also, um, it grabbed my attention because I saw its recommendation on Goodreads. It was um, really high up on the Goodreads meter there. And it's, the title is obviously a play on a Jane Austen novel. Um, and right, right. Um, If you've heard any previous episodes, you know that, like, Jane Austen is, like, my favorite author. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. uh, So I was immediately drawn to that. And um, when I was reading the description of it, this is released um, fairly recently. So it's a a newer book. She's well-known for some of her other novels. And she's um, pretty academic. Um, She's, like, a professor and stuff like that. And also, it was interesting because we had just... um, uh, two books ago, finished uh, Native Speaker, which was an immigrant experience. And this one also um, kind of like delves into the idea of like the Asian immigrant experience, and especially for mm-hmm. the second and third generations of, of those immigrants. So I thought that was going to be an interesting kind of like lead, a, uh, build off of the the Native Speaker text that we had read.
0: Totally. This has... I think could have tremendous conversation with that work. We'll get into shortly if... I I don't think I'm responding to it in the same way, but that's okay. I I think it has a lot of ideas about immigration and those two books could be in good concert together. So, Mm -hmm. no, totally. That's definitely true. And I will say given the prompt I gave you I don't think you could have picked something more fragmented than this I think this is almost incoherently <laughs> fragmented <laughs> but that's again I'll you know I'll, I'll lay off until we get into the specifics of it but yeah no I you chose well like this has been a interesting really challenging read I think for me so let's um let's dig into it shall we yeah. if you're if you're sticking along with us I guess I should mention for the final time we are going to cover the first half of the book we always split our book clubs in half so in this case we're reading just the Sansei half it's like pages one through a ish right in our Mm -hmm. collection and then yeah yeah and so the next next friday in book club part two we'll cover the second half and then the the whole book of course so that's what we'll be spoiling for today if you're sensitive to that and if you don't care well then join us anyway let's start with fill in the blanks amanda i'll have you start since you picked the book and you wrote the fill in the blank as well perfectly fitting so go ahead and start us with the fill in the blank for this
1: book um i chose this fill in the blank because the second to last um part of the Mm -hmm. part one is um, just a list of recipes, which I found really um, interesting and and playful and almost food memoir esque. So I thought I'd play on that, especially since we just finished a food memoir. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So the, the prompt is if I had to choose a dish that represents my cultural, cultural identity, it would be blank. And so for me, I chose kimchi jjigae, um, which is like kimchi stew. And oh, okay. yeah, it's hmm. first of all, it's like my my brother and my mom. This is their their favorite dish. Right. So it's um, it's got kimchi and it's got um, tofu and it's got um, meat in it in our family um, and in a lot of Korean families. Um, the meat is actually spam. Um, and oh, okay. so I chose kimchi jjigae because it's like a marriage, a mixture of both the Korean kimchi, but also the spam, which comes from the American soldiers um, bringing in some some of their foods and stuff like that. So it's like a, a it's a perfect marriage of the two cultures for oh. me, and, and it's a comfort food as well because it reminds me of of home.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, how do you find in the past decade or so the it's been slow moving I suppose but to me as a non-Korean person I it seemed kind of fast moving to my perception but again I, that's a privileged position but what do you think about like the proliferation of kimchi I feel like I like I went back to Janesville Wisconsin where I'm from mm-hmm. and there now this is a restaurant downtown uh, called Lark is the name of it and it's I would say It's attempting to be heightened cuisine, but it's Americana food at its core. But it's, yeah, it's like a nicer, more upscale version of all that stuff. It's not like a chain or anything. It's a standalone. It's got a chef whose name is on the menu, that kind of stuff anyway. Mm. I don't think it would blow anyone's minds if you're eaten out in, like, major cities. But, you know, it's Janesville, small town. It's nice. But their mac and cheese is kimchi mac and cheese. Like, that's where kimchi's at now. Like, you can get kimchi mac and cheese in Janesville, which... Uh, to me is like, whoa, it's, yeah, it's here to stay or something. It's, it's having a moment. I don't know how you perceive it though. If you've noticed it creeping in, in kind of, I don't know, a bigger cultural uh, culinary way.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. And I think that's because there's a lot more um, focus with like um, the, the TV shows like Iron Chef and stuff like that, where they introduce these flavors and these ingredients that are um, more exotic so we see things mm-hmm. like kimchi and you see like natto and stuff like that, like things that, that the West doesn't normally eat. Um, I think they're having a moment right now just because of how uh, the um, food industry has been portrayed in, in the media now. It's just like something else for us to consume. And so we get to see those things right. that we d- wouldn't necessarily eat ourselves. I mean, you you came up with that, um, uh, the kimchi dip Right, the, the chip oh yeah. yeah, man, that yeah. was delicious. Yeah, and I'd never thought of something like that. I I thought it was wonderfully, wonderfully. Just creative. start
0: mixing it with all kinds of stuff. I think yeah. that had yeah, it was cream uh, cream cheese as kind of a base, but there was some other stuff going on in there. But yeah, yeah, it was basically like a fatty kimchi dip. It was very good. Yeah, it was easy to spread on crackers kimchi yeah. something i enjoy too for me a little goes a long way and that's true for me with most pickled or fermented foods mm-hmm. i like them but i like sauerkraut and pickles i really like but yeah a little goes a long way for me is my takeaway kimchi mm-hmm. kind of the same like it um i don't know if i've ever had a soup based off of it again that's the, that sounds to me like i would need to try it to know because that might be too much but it might also be amazing I'd, yeah i'm intrigued that's yeah I'm maybe not i'll surprised. make it
1: for you one day then be when be fun, when all yeah. of this crazy quarantine stuff is over, <laughs> ten years stuff. from now,
0: in <laughs> the in the apocalyptic wasteland, I, you know, if we get kimchi in the apocalypse, then whatever that's we're doing, all right, making it happen. We'll definitely have cabbage. It. Yeah, I don't know if we'll have the things to make it, but we'll have cabbage for sure. I'll I'll throw out a really quick one. I you chose such a fascinating prompt because it exposes my shallowness. I. <laughs> I've struggled, and I d- still don't have an answer to what my cultural identity even is. I don't even know. I just identify as American. I think, like, most kind of white mutts of, of like, mixed European descent, I don't—I feel absolutely nothing for ancestors of my family. For the people I've met in my family, I feel a tremendous amount. Uh, for example, my mom or my grandfather, that, but, like— I feel nothing like if someone did a DNA test on me, they could tell me literally anything. I would feel absolutely nothing. I'm certain of this. I just don't care, <laughs> which you know maybe that's me repressing something or I don't know we can do the we'll do the therapy session later. <laughs> so I've always struggled with this because I know I think I'm mostly Irish, maybe like Scottish and French or some combo. literally don't care, never been to those places would love to go. but I'd love to go anywhere. I'd love to go to Japan and I'm not Japanese so mm-hmm. I <laughs> it's I don't know anyway, so I struggle with this. I just went with a homegrown, Midwest white American answer I think the cheeseburger is is a really good representation I think for me personally what does a cheeseburger represent kind of everything and nothing which is why it's such a good symbol symbolic food like it can be heightened and kind of perfect in a way if you're hungover, it can be a sublime eating experience and it has all these textures and it's gooey but it's crispy but it's and it can be really indulgent you can also make it kind of healthy and dress it up also there's like black bean burgers that's good but i just think the burger is such a malleable thing and you don't have to overthink it and it's amazing and then if you do decide to overthink it it can also result in something i think really intricate and good as well mm-hmm. so i think it just has multitudes going on i think from where i'm from maybe my strongest identity is as a person from wisconsin or the midwest i guess like i i even that I feel kind of shaky on, but I say that with some pride. Like I don't mind saying I'm from Wisconsin or, you know, I enjoyed growing up there or something. So maybe a cheeseburger too, cause it's the dairy capital. So put a lot of cheese on that burger, just in honor of Wisconsin. And I think that's the food I'll have to go with, but I, I like the malleability of the cheeseburger. I also think, I like a food where even the worst version, you know, you put a little extra topping on there, a little extra mustard, and you're like, yeah, this is fine. But of yeah. course, it has great heights, too. You know, an amazing cheeseburger at the right moment is like a, yeah, transcendent experience. So that's my answer, I think.
1: I like that. And and that was going to be, that's what I found interesting when I, I was looking forward to your answers, because with immigrants and immigrant children of course uh, you know the the need to maintain the the culture of the native country is is really i mean it's it's prominent in the way that they're raised and so with non-immigrant children it's interesting to see how they relate their cultural identity because uh, being american is such a broad concept and and um so i was thinking that you would go with like the state in particular, state. yeah, totally. Yep, yeah.
0: in the states, I think for many white Americans like me, for, of my specific experience, which I'm like t- so many generations removed from immigrating now, though I, I'm pretty sure my family has immigrated. My mom, probably, if she's listening this far, is hanging her head in shame because I'm certain I've been told this. Like, I know <laughs> I've been told many stories about my grandfather's father, for example.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He was involved in a lot of like business in Singapore, and my grandpa kind of grew up in Singapore. I know all that stuff. But I didn't grow. I'd never been to Singapore, so it's like, why do I care about this anyway? Um, but no, so I there there's connections, and I'm sure that someone knows the answers. My uncle would know. My mom would probably know. My aunt possibly. So anyway, yeah. I don't need to sound flip about it, but it's. I always struggled with that in school growing up too, because it's kind of. I think a lot of people, when you're my complexion with freckles and red hair, they're like, "Well, you're Irish." And I guess my answer was always, I, "I guess so. <laughs> I don't know." It's, Irish, or Irish Scottish. Seem, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they seem nice. I like all the things I've understood about ireland i am sure i'd get along great there i can i'll have a pint and sing some songs and like hang out in the countryside that all sounds perfectly lovely to me so anyway yeah. corned beef cabbage also delicious <laughs> but no i i agree with your read on this i had to go something american something yeah midwest so the burger now, let's get into some book specifics here, talk about some surprises. This is our second segment. We like to begin kind of broadly just talking about what surprises us about the work, and it could be something pleasant or otherwise, so it doesn't have to be something we enjoyed, just something that took us by surprise. I suppose I'll start, because I've already tipped my hand on this. Uh, I am not reacting to this book very well, though I... I'm not finding it painful or anything either, and I don't think it's bad, but I'm having a really hard time latching onto it. So there's two ways I want to phrase this. One is uh, not generous, and the other is generous. And I'll say both, because I've felt both ways. I think this book at times can feel... Now, I don't... Is this ableist to say schizophrenic? I, I don't think I'm supposed to say it that quite that way anymore. It feels very... Uh scatterbrained how about that? I think that's a very uh, it's a much better way to say it So I think this can feel very scatterbrained. That would be the non-generous reading Uh, The other way to read it would be that it's very ambitious because In a short story of seven pages you are hit with like 35 illusions and it's Mm -hmm. like Well, either that is a really bold creative choice and you're expecting a lot of the reader or it's like Did you have an idea here or are you just saying words? (laughs) And I think sometimes it can be both I think the colonoscopy chapter, or I'm not even chapter, that's a short story. Um, yeah. That is probably the best example for me because at some point in that story, the narrator, main character who's getting the colonoscopy begins calling the doctor Sacagawea out of, I think, seemingly nowhere, though there, there's some things about that. And I'm just doing some quick summaries. There's discussions then about concentration camps in Utah, about indigenous genocide, which relates to Sacagawea. There's discussion about East Asian diets and vegetables. Then there's discussions about Pearl Harbor and World War Two. Then there's also about spam food, so like immigrant food and the marriage of those cultural foods which you hit on. Then there are specific references to people artists and japanese immigrant artists who i've never heard of which you know that's on me i don't know a lot about art history but then there's about things about colonization then they talk about the cold war this is like two pages of stuff like i don't it felt so bombarding that i really left it feeling nothing and i now granted a lot of i think fine art can leave people feeling in that cold way like i don't know what i was supposed to take away or i didn't feel grounded so this could just be me expecting certain things and wanting to have, I don't know, maybe more traditional short story forms or something. But I have been unpleasantly surprised by how scattered this has felt. I, how did you feel, for example, about the timeline? Like, did that... I, I think there were moments in the timeline where seeing, when you see something like atomic bomb and then the next thing is something about, like, sushi gets invented, or I, that's not a real example, but it's it marries the trivial with the grandiose. And I was like, I kind of get this. This is... I'm kind of feeling something here, but then also I'm just like, why is this really like five to six pages? Like I'm not, this isn't engaging me in any deep way. I don't, these are just names. I'm not, I don't know anything about this stuff. And so I need someone to give me the emotional impact or like guide me through that. So I don't know how you felt about those moments.
1: Yeah. So I actually, I liked the colonoscopy, um, story a lot. And, um, I thought that was, it definitely, I think the the def when you said that it's ambitious, I think that's what I took away from it. I can see the more negative, like chaotic, scatterbrained type, because I definitely see that. But I think her, at least in this first half, it's like she's this is her like academic capital L literary. Uh, writing where if you are not steeped within that academic world these references you are not going to get like the, the Bor- Borges, Borges and yeah. I, the, he's an actual yeah. author like all those right. name drops and, and the only reason I know that Borges is um, an actual writer is because I had to look him up because I noticed that she talked about Basho and she talked about Teresa um, ha- um Ha-kyo, Ha-kyung, Ha-kyung, whatever her name i can't remember but you so surely read- aren't
0: you you aren't reaching to me for a name pronunciation are you I <laughs> surely assume you're, <laughs> p- yeah please go to google i have mispronounced every name we've ever covered on this podcast so
1: <laughs> so yeah, you and i anyway. we've actually um we read basho together yeah
0: really enjoyed it yeah it.
1: and we did we loved that and then when she name dropped teresa Kyung cha i've read her she's a post she was a postmodern um poet korean um immigrant yeah. and yeah. so i was like oh man i know these two so is this dude actually a real guy so i actually had to like do some research <laughs> right on this right. stuff and and that's when i realized like that several of these stories are actually like like based in like some some nonfiction stuff, um, mm-hmm, so yeah, yeah I, I think that the the term ambitious is definitely what I would use uh, for a lot of her writing because it is just so highly meant to be for those in the academic world almost.
0: And I think the Borges is a good example. I I'm familiar That's with some of good his good. short stories and I have read a few. It's meant to be very surreal maybe not satisfying in the traditional narrative sense with structure but it's it is meant to be more evocative and yeah surrealist so the way that story ends with a sudden shooting and then, you know, I do not know who I shot or if it's a younger man. I don't know. I, <laughs> I do not know if he was a learned sinologist or a Mexican folklorist or a lyricist of Jabberwocky. And it does feel very Alice in Wonderland, which that's the same author of the Jabberwocky reference. So it does feel very down the rabbit hole. At some point in one of these stories, that that phrase is used also, by the way. I should have marked it. I forgot when. But they that is said in one of these And so, you know, it ends my primal scream caging yellowed by a judgmental media. I do not know which one of us has written this page. And then it ends like that kind of just basic undercutting of narrative expectation. It does feel like the most academic thing we've read so far, Yeah, you know, where you have stories that end in that manner and kind of pick up seemingly at random. There's there's a little bit of, I don't know, to use a metaphor, like table setting but not a lot. You're you're kind of expected to pick up and go with it. I, I agree. It does feel the most academic. And it's funny because I would have easily said that for the kind of native son, uh, sorry, native speaker, keep flipping those, and <laughs> bluest eye back-to-back combo. I would have thought that was as literary kind of as we were going to get. Maybe not, of course, in the entire pod, we'll do all kinds of readings, but this has suppl- uh, sub- supplanted those both. Like This is the most challenging thing, I think.
1: Yeah, this is, I think, uh, a challenging read, and I think it's meant yeah. to be something that is studied. Whereas the other two, it's meant to be like, it's meant to bring to the public issues that they think are important. Whereas this one is just like, just so steeped in, in academia that it's it's not approachable by, by people sure. who are not in, into that anyway.
0: (laughs) And what, so is your surprise related to that as well? It seems like it is kind of. It
1: is. Yeah. So, um, I thought the stories would be more along the lines of like plot driven stories. Um, and instead we get these almost essays or like fiction essays and the stream of consciousness compositions. And it's not to say I didn't enjoy them. It's just, it's not what I was expecting. And therefore I had to completely change the headspace I was in, in order to give a fair shot to these compositions Mm -hmm. because if I would have continued like the first story, I was like reading it like, Oh, this is like short fiction. I'm really enjoying this. And then the next one I was like, what I, what? So I had to change Mm -hmm. the way that I was reading thing, uh, her, her works in order to, it's like each one I had to change the way that I was reading, which, you know, it it is a, I guess a, a good thing. You can't, you definitely can't speed read through these, um, no. But if you if you're like not interested in like sitting down and really like picking apart some of these writings, and I mean like you're just not gonna like it. But if you yeah. are interested yeah. in like different plays on like genres and 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 ideas that are expressed in, in in very unique ways, then I think that this could be a very fulfilling read too.
0: Yeah, it's been. I think even reading two in a row is a mistake, which feels weird because I've not read that way at all. I think I've read it in two large chunks, maybe three. But, and it also feels weird to say that because some of these are five pages, maybe seven, ten, something like that. Brief, mm-hmm. though. Very short. So, But I really don't think for the back half of this, I will try and avoid reading two in a row ever. Like even if it's just – even if I read three in a day, maybe I'll read one when I wake up, take 15 minutes, that kind of a thing. But right. yeah, I think for the second half, that is what I've learned is that I, I don't – I think you have to let these things settle and reread chunks when you're reading them and everything. So yeah, it's been – I think is scatterbrained maybe is the way i'll say it but yes it's it's clear in its ambitions too it feels very academic in that way let's jump into motifs we've been alluding at some or alluding to some so let's get into it officially do you have a motif that jumped out to you something repeated in the text that um had a lot of meaning
1: yeah the uh, internment camps it's like nearly every story alludes to it in some way and um, it's I, related to the idea of like preservation and cultural identity and perception. There's it takes on it almost like morphs into several different symbols through the course of the this collection so far, um, which I, I found really mm-hmm. fascinating. And and I'm hoping that that kind of continues into um, the latter half, just because the the Japanese internment is something that. I feel like I have never read of uh, the Japanese internment outside of like Japanese American literature. So you mean you've never
0: read something from an American perspective on it? Or... Yes. Yeah. That sounds about right to me as well. Now that you say it, that's true. Like farewell to Manzanar is the only super, f- cause I taught that book when I was yeah. a teacher. But yeah. other than that, I can't even think, I can't even really think of a major, it is a strangely, well, maybe not so strange. D- given how America deals with some of its, like, racial atrocities and histories and stuff. It's maybe not strange, but it it's, like, acknowledged but not foregrounded or something. Also, mm-hmm. man, are we really going to unpack the moralizing of World War Two here? No, <laughs> but it, it is one of the, like, it seems in American history one of the only events where the moral high ground is so unquestioned in our mind that it's, like, we're not going to revisit the sins of World War II because it's like undisputably the hero's moment, and so it—that's kind of how it's been built up in the in the mythological mind of Americans or something like. It's because there was such an obvious evil, quote unquote, not even quotes, with not Nazis were evil, but it's just because the whole war gets super kind of consumed by that notion. Like even though the internment camps were, and I think unnecessary at best and like evil at worst act or something with no not a lot of evidence to back them or anything like it was just random parent racist paranoia um it yeah i'm not shocked that it's been kind of it's acknowledged like it's one of those things where I bristle at people being like, it's never taught. And it's like, well, no, I've been in middle schools and high schools. Like it gets taught, but it gets taught for 10 minutes in like a day. It's, it's not, it's something right. underlooked, I think is the thing. It's not that it's ignored. It's just that how we should probably give it a bit more attention and a bit more kind of, um, yeah, a bit more attention than, than we do, I guess is what I'm concluding mm-hmm. at. But yeah.
1: yeah, I, I agree. Like I, I had not actually, when I was in middle school, and in high school, I was not taught that about the internment camps. Like I didn't know about that until I stumbled upon mm-hmm. it in um, a story that I read by a oh, okay. Japanese American. And then I was like, "What?" And then I started doing some research yeah. on my own. That's yeah. when, yeah,
0: I see. I hear you say that, and my initial, my teacher brain goes into its defensive mode, and my thought is the same. I always think when people say that a for, I just it's often online when people lament their their education. Why didn't we get taught this? Uh, my reaction is always, I bet you did, but you, it didn't stick. I don't know. You got a middle school brain, man. Like, yeah, it, you're rare. not going to remember five minutes of a lecture in one year in seventh grade. <laughs> like, I yeah. and again, that's, we can then discuss how much more time or let, like, we can get into all broader discussions of how much focus, but it's, I just hear it and I'm like, no, it was in there, but it's the uh, the the common thing. This is a digression now fully. Maybe I'll cut this, but the way I m- <laughs> hear that most often is around like finances and stuff where it's like, why didn't we get taught? how to balance a checkbook or do that kind of it's like no it's in there like that's what Um, politics and economics like civics classes for but like you don't care about a debit card when you don't have one so just being told how a debit card works isn't gonna you don't care like we could tell you how a credit card works when you don't have a credit card and then 10 years later you're just gonna complain about how you didn't get taught about credit cards and it's like yeah man because you didn't have one you weren't gonna pay that close of attention (laughs) when you don't have one to like fail at and actually uh, yeah understand the ramifications like Anyway, so it just hits me in that same mind spot. But again, I believe you that you, it was never covered. I just, yeah, it's it's an unfortunate, another part of our educational focus maybe is how we could think of it. To get back to the text though, because I've digressed way too much. Did you enjoy the story when they toured the US then? What did you make of that one? The kind of, was it a mother-daughter thing? Is that a, it's a road uh, trip. It was
1: um, her niece. She and her oh, niece okay. went on the internment gotcha. um, uh, tour. Yeah, and and I did. Um, I I liked it because I thought that it was interesting that the the these camps that are so full of history that are so meaningful to a lot of people, there it's like falling apart and then also the people even if it's your property, you can't go back and take it. Right? She made right. that comment yeah. like even if I found my waffle iron, my family's waffle iron, I can't take it because it, now it's a part of this museum, and they're not even like. It's just like stuff that's sitting out and just rotting away, and it's like the idea. Especially if you look back on the other stories, it's the idea of like the the loss of that cultural identity is just like degrading over time, and mm-hmm. I and yeah. this what I take from that story and these other stories it's more of like the the meaning of it and, and her intention is what I like about the stories. And then like the actual stories themselves, it's, it's not, like I said, because it's not plot driven. She does have some interesting yeah. like quotes and some interesting imagery that she can call forward and some interesting metaphors. But that's not like my, my main takeaway from a lot of these stories. I'm looking at it from my academic brain, which is the intention, rather than my literary brain, which is the, the analysis of, of the stories themselves.
0: I think it was the story that worked best for me in it. But I think you said it perfectly earlier in this one. It's now drawn this one into such clear sight for me. This is an essay that just happens to be a story because if someone told me they were going to look at the trend of Marie Kondo's media empire, which wasn't that long ago that her whole Netflix show blew up. And was that a quarantine thing? Was that pre quarantine? I don't even remember. It felt like it was. (laughs) Maybe it was like a year or two ago. But Taking that notion, analyzing it through the lens of what does it even mean to be? Is that what is it to be Japanese and then Japanese American? What is this export that we're all taking in? Really popular, kind of tidy, the queen of tidiness or something. Right. But then marrying that and contrasting against these museums that are building up all this kind of historical detritus over time, and you know they're being curated. But is that what really should be curated? And what's the value of getting rid of these memories or keeping them? And hit like, yeah, it's got. It's there are so many ideas you could play with here but it does feel like an essay the way i describe it like if i were to describe the short story where a person t- takes a tour through museums and thinks about their meaning like okay that's a story and but then all of a sudden there's this marie kondo thing on top of it that doesn't have any direct connection to the plot or characters it's just kind of the story includes reflections about marie kondo's influence and so it mm-hmm. says like here at the bottom of 80, 93, um, Kondo's admonition that clutter is the failure to return all things to where they belong, her insistence that um, on simplicity and minimalism, all this only reminds you of what you assume is the Japanese-American motto, leave it cleaner than you found it, Kondo writes. No matter how wonderful things used to be, we cannot live in the past. The joy and excitement we feel here and now are more important, but you have the deep urge to exchange the word wonderful for awful and sit in that spot in the museum and weep. And so it's, you know, kind of a, Devastating truth about leaving behind things that perhaps should be held on to. I don't know. Things have merit over, over. They seem even if they're not useful. They might have merit even if they don't seem to. So uh, yeah, and it's an interesting reflection on on that group and yeah the, how they view their place in a in a society that has interned them at times too. So it's yeah. i There's a lot of interesting ideas here to be sure. And I think you've nailed that. I don't know if the literariness is moving me in any way. But that was the story I think that gripped me the most. I think it just had the clearest ideas. At least it only had two ideas, I thought. Anyway, like, and maybe I'm being too reductive or rude, but it's just like, okay, I can grapple with, you want to look at these museums, the role of this event in U.S. history, this horrific thing, and then contrast it against this modern Japanese export that people in the States seem to really love and were kind of like, everyone loved that Marie Kondo show and they want to be neater. And so... I, I, yeah, that just worked for me, I, I suppose.
1: but Yeah, and, and then connected back to even her opening line, one of her opening lines in that particular s- essay story mm-hmm. um, right. where yeah. she's talking about like if you're living in the past and you can't move forward and then there's present and then there's future. And she said that like when you have a cultural identity, it's like you cannot live in the present. You're either thinking about the past or you're thinking about mm-hmm. the future. There's no present which Marie Kondo is meant to be present thinking and and so it's bumping up against that. Let me throw up really my my
0: motif then just so I can ask you another question actually about it. the what I thought was the most story-like story so far the the maybe simplest in structure uh parents especially older or middle-aged parents is what I chose for my motif. Mm-hmm. I think in almost every story or some of these are just essays too and every one there's some kind of adult figure parental figure who they often make a sacrifice or they have to you know immigrate or move and there's and then there's how do they get old how do we view them but what did you think of the dentist story because I think it's the clearest story it has a plot of sorts it has conflict and rising action and here I'm using all my 6th grade lingo <laughs> you mm-hmm. know my childish analysis but I think it is the most story like moment so sure. do, how do you how did you analyze or take it and did the parental aspect of it seem to cuz it's he's did, notably bored middle aged he does his golf Wednesdays like it the story goes out of its way to make him seem kind of like he's if not deteriorating, just kind of stagnant, like he's set himself up well, but isn't thriving anymore, maybe mentally or something. How did you like that story?
1: I, I really enjoyed that story actually. And and my takeaway from that was like the idea of, um, duty and obligation before all and so the reason that he seems so stagnant is because he's he set up this practice and he married well and and he's staying in the practice and he does his job well because he has to he's expected to and then when she starts like picking apart um the when the dental hygienist starts picking apart other people's lives that's when we see that he um, he's like getting some joy out of it right and he's like sabotaging his own career essentially because he's refusing to let her go uh, yeah, yeah. he's he's taking he's finally getting some joy out of it and so with that joy comes um, some some like sabotage of his sense of obligation and duty and 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 mm-hmm. it's disturbing to him when he finally has to sit down in the chair as well um, right. but only right. because he's afraid of what she'll see and what she sees is that he's you know he's he's done enough he's he's had his his job done and all that stuff and so he that's when he's like you know what I'm leaving I'm gonna go I finally like mm-hmm. you know what I've, I've done my duty I've done what I'm supposed to do and, and I'm leaving and I, I was I, surprised love I so that
0: yeah, I was surprised that Betty. I I thought the divorce would be the other kind of emancipation moment, but it was kind of sweet that she came too. I don't I don't know why it didn't present their marriage as kind of. I think it even had lines in there about how it was really a lovely marriage, not conflict ridden or anything, and was just nice. But I for some reason I thought that would be the other middle aged man, like he gets in his convertible and <laughs> we're getting a divorce or something. But no, it was it was kind of sweet in its way. And the truth, of course, had to come in the chair from Candy, the ultimate undoing of any dentist. Although it's an odd one, though, is a symbolic name just because a lot of dentists credit their whole practice and wealth to people eating poorly, people eating candy. But I guess sometimes it's, you know, the the truth that sets you free in that way. And yeah, I thought, I don't know, it was, I was intrigued by the story's premise. And then I, I guess I didn't think some of the reflections he was having about keeping her there were a couple of scenes where she's, you know, trashing his patients and revealing all their, their most innermost secrets to themselves and all of that stuff. And he keeps her on anyway out of a curiosity and enjoyment. I, I thought maybe that should have been built up a touch more, but I, yeah, I did kind of, I enjoyed reading something that grounded me a bit more in my own kind of literary preferences. It did feel like a pretty clear story to me, I guess. Yeah,
1: it definitely did. And, and the literary components too, where he, he keeps making references to like, candies different types of candy gum lollipops and stuff like that i thought that was really well done and really interesting and i think that was the the literariness that i was like expecting with the others as well Mm -hmm. as we all know people candy will set you free we we all know (laughs) this to be true
0: (laughs) your sweet tooth will guide you
1: yeah, she, and she will expose all your foibles. <laughs> that's that's right. It's Yeah, you're going to have cavities, and they're going to be painful. But uh, yep. I don't
0: know. <laughs> She'll clean it's it all, up for you, though. <laughs> I, that's right. It's all worth it in the end, you know, just to get the sugar rush, a little bit of a high. Were there mm. any other parents that stood out to you? Because, again, I think they appear in, I don't know, nearly every story.
1: Yeah, they're... they're pretty
0: much everywhere. I kind of enjoyed the the nonfiction Again, it didn't hit me in any profound way, but the just the history, her own reflections on these photos of her grandparents or great-grandparents, I think some of them were, and was it is Lucio just a friend of hers, a husband from Brazil? I couldn't even tell what their relationship was. Maybe I missed it or forgotten.
1: I think she said that they might have been like some kind of cousin or something like that, oh, but then yeah, they're cousins, not they maybe. don't have the same grandparents either. Um. Mm. so I think that it's just I know that she did research down there and it might have just been somebody that she met while she was down there doing her mm-hmm. research it is nice
0: to see loving if not I wouldn't say it's the prose is too adorned or anything but it is like loving descriptions of people who toughed it out and kind of did their duty so to speak li- lived a good life next to those photos that are often just curiosities to people kind of you know have an antique look about them, but it, so it's kind of, it was nice to see that life given. And I get, I think that project is kind of an essay idea. I thought it was nice. Again, I don't think it deeply moved me or if it had some kind of broader thesis or coming together moment, I, I don't know if it got there for me, but I just thought it was kind of nice. I was, yeah, it was like interesting to hear about some history and I, the, everything I learned about Brazil in those moments I had not known. So uh, yeah, that all kind of, I thought it was a nice, interesting piece.
1: I enjoyed that one because uh that was the it was a focus on actually the the women who right yeah were immigrants and so I found that really fascinating because the the thread that pulled along was that these women did not really have a choice in immigration right they yeah um, families only right yeah so the the guys actually brought them over and they were the right. ones that were like well this is what we're doing and they just had to go along with it but even though they didn't have a choice in that they were the backbones of the family and they were the ones who supported their families. All four of those grandparents, the, the, the women had to do that. And the men were um, like, we had the, the, the academic guy who like could not move beyond whatever. And, And so his wife had to take care of all that stuff. It's, I just found that interesting, that the common thread being that they didn't have a choice, they made the most of it, and they were the ones that were basically the supporters of their families. Yeah,
0: and there was the one woman who ended up doing, she ended up, I think, teaching Japanese at some point, so kind of ended up doing the intellectual work in a sense anyway. Right. (laughs) Sort of, yeah, she was operating both the farm and the classroom, which, yeah. yeah, I don't know, just can't fathom that double life. That's <laughs> tough and tough on both sides, but that's the toughness of it all. Yeah, no, I I thought that was a nice interlude. It's jumping between that and a symbolic short story about a man's midlife crisis with his assistant Candy, and it's, it yeah, whiplash is a word, I think, that <laughs> yeah. came to mind, too. I know you said that earlier, but it's it is a. It makes for an odd combination, to be sure. Yeah. Let's move to a segment that might be redundant by now, but who cares? We're doing it anyway. <laughs> um, we may have given, showed our hands on this one, but that's okay. This is the Please Continue, Make It Stop segment. We only do this in part one of the book club just because we're halfway through, so we can say things like, what do we like about this? What do we hope keeps coming up? And then, what do we hope stops? Why don't you go ahead first, actually, with your make it stop or please continue? I feel like I've said mine, so I'll try and be quick on the back end, but
1: go ahead. Yeah, um, I'll start with my make it stop. Um, the use of the the you, right? The, the mm-hmm. point of view you, this the second person point of view. I don't think it adds anything to the stories. Is she trying to make the experience universal? But then that universality, I mean, it's just so the stories that she creates with the use of the word you it's extremely personal a lot of the time and it's hard to make that a universal aspect that you can apply to some to your reader to try to imagine as and and empathize with it's just for me I think that she could have not done that and instead used the personal pronoun if she wanted to make it more personal sounding or if she wanted to include more I don't know, insights that were not just her own, but a, of a, of a people Then she could have used the third person omniscient would have been great too. But the, the second yeah. person point of view for me just really fell flat and I just didn't think that it was necessary. And she, she used it in a couple of those stories. And then she had the one story where, um, with the architect, right? So like it was in third person and then it changes to the second person. Then it's in third person. Then it's in second person, like the back and forth there. Yeah. And I'm just like, And I know that it's meant to be two different narratives, but at the same time, it's like, man, I don't. I think maybe the moment it both
0: worked and didn't for me, because it implicated me in something I at least had a little background knowledge of, was the Hello Kitty, Kiss of Kitty. That was an essay. I will call that an essay. I mean, it's nonfiction for sure, whatever it is. It's an essay in my mind, but yeah. And so I think there's moments, I got a couple quotes here that can elaborate on that, but Talks about Godzilla, and it says, mm-hmm. even if you've only watched one Godzilla movie, you know Tokyo or some great cosmopolitan city and its infrastructures will have to be squashed back to Stone Age ruination. And then, kind of later, it says something like, and then it talks about how that connects to Moby Dick and, um, and Melville, but then it says, um, the Great Leviathan has become this, as in Moby Dick, Hello Kitty. And this, I think, is a turn Benedict would might have predicted, the end product of Melville's 19th century discovery, a plastic doll. Well, maybe. That is to say, occupying a people under the auspices of chrysanthemum and sword might mean that people play out the chrysanthemum in order to not suffer again the sword. But then it segues after that into Japanese animation, And then it says something like, if your previous world changes forever, if you experience your own extinction, maybe this kind of escape is inevitable and reflects on that. I think she, I mean, she has a voracious mind and there is an essay in here that I'm very intrigued to read, but I, again, it just jumps topics just too readily for me. And without, it doesn't fully get me on board with one argument before it kind of picks up another. So I, in that essay, I read second person to me, I guess it was kind of like, okay, japan has cultural exports that people in america or we could just say i guess the west are familiar with godzilla sure movie icon of sorts japanese anime very popular depends on the age groups and and types and all that stuff whatever but yeah it's there are these things that connect and have evolved in a more commercial sense and hello kitty that was a phenomenon for a bit there i don't think she's overstating that it, that was a big yeah i don't know what was that five years of kind of you know sticker books and toys and plushies and what you know I think. Don't you have a Hello Kitty thing in your car? Or am I thinking of somebody else? Thinking, I do
1: not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking,
0: but but I've known someone in my life who had like a plushie on their dashboard. I think it was like a high school or college friend of mine. But it was just, you know, it's like a cute icon symbol person whatever mascot but and so i think in a story like that where it's more contemporary first of all and it's trying to talk about broader cultural trends that maybe i don't know like a, a person reading english readership right and a Amer- uh, english speaking readership might think yeah okay like i know this cultural stuff still though i think that it, it, it's too scattered in topic to for me to fully ride with that voice but i guess that was where it worked the most for me just cuz i was nodding at some of the reflections and her ideas about these big cultural icons i guess
1: i think that one that particular one also worked for me with the the use of the you because the way that i read that it was more of like a presentation almost like a speech yes or a lecture oh, yeah. Very and good. and so that i i got on board with but the ones that are meant oh, yeah. to be more story like i i struggled yeah. with with that more
0: yeah unless it's going to be almost violent in its urgency or something. I don't like right. second person in fiction that much. It has to be for something severe. It has to be right. like a thriller or some kind of intense thing, <laughs> tone or something. But yeah, no, I, that, that one worked for me, I guess, but you're right. It's all that she was missing was some kind of big projector screen with some, with like a PowerPoint. <laughs> and right. that would have yeah. fit. Cause you know, she shows the, she could show the iconography of Godzilla and then talk about Moby Dick and show that. And yeah, anyway, like, the visuals of that would work so well. So I think mm-hmm. you nailed it. That that feels like a college professor, like kind of riffing in their lecture, having a good time. That's maybe yeah. the maybe kind of the tone they're going for. I'll throw out my make it stop again. I'll try and be brief on mine. I just think it jumps around too much. It plays too much with juxtaposition. I think that her short stories, for all of their writing pleasures, and I think both the the dentist story and the internment camp trip one had moments of real, just kind of pure story narrative expression pleasure. Uh, some of them feel like they just kind of wither and die before they reach their potential. I especially felt that way about the colonoscopy one in the Indian summer. I just think there was too much frustration in the lack of focus. Like the colonoscopy is kind of a symbolic middle age crisis point, And then you're digging through this literal shit of your past. And I, it had potential to me. And I think some of the references there at some point they see something it's it's a polyp but it's like looks like an atomic bomb to her and there's the legacy of that but it, it's kind of just like please just pick a thing and focus on it or slow down a little i don't it just the tone and pace of it to me was just a, it was just too much and i think maybe that does come with being a bit more academic as you've kind of rightly diagnosed at the beginning of this it just I don't know I, again, call it ambitious, I think it would be the generous thing, but I for me, it wasn't hitting the right register I, there's just too much kind of bandying about for me
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i I actually did like the colonoscopy one <laughs> because it, yeah. it's like the 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 play on the idea of colonization um which is why we have the the Native American references and also like the the almost like well what i've i've pointed out before um is the idea of like these um minority groups who um instead of banding together um to fight for rights and to fight for equality and stuff it's it's more of like well my my people suffered more than your people and and well you your people are also complicit in this thing and therefore we can't mm-hmm. really work together yeah. w- with the the Sacagawea pointing out like um the the loss of, of Native American land Like you, you had no right to be You shouldn't have been interned in Utah anyway Because that's not your land And it's not American land It's our land uh, And stuff like that So mm-hmm. I found that really interesting And, and thought provoking So I, I understand like from a story point of view Perhaps it was incomplete in a lot of ways But um, I enjoyed it because it was for me Thought provoking And I think it's because I at that point Was already looking at it as like academic writing versus just pleasure writing.
0: (laughs) I think, I think in order for it to move out of the, you know, this, this is a deep cut for fans of the podcast, but we did a book club on this collection of, what was it called? Like revolutionary or progressive. What was that? The, um, oh gosh, Octavius brood was the name of it, but I forget how it was pitched.
1: Uh, it's a revolution, revolutionary Mm -hmm. writings and, and philosophers. Yeah. yeah,
0: things from the radical, what I say radical in a not critique or from the far left, like it's it's very left ideas about yeah. the world, political things, which you know you and I grappled with, I think, well in that, but. In that episode, one thing I struggled against was when does your pamphlet turn to art and when does your art turn to pamphlet? And I, in a story of four pages, this just story does not do it for me. Like, I don't need a list of all the things that have been colonized. I, it's put up against such intriguing ideas and symbols. I, I think the whole premise works. I think it needs 10 more pages and to slow down for me for it to work as a piece of story art. Like, I think as a kind of a, not even funny in jam or uh, juxtaposition of symbols, but kind of a really intense one and, and fitting enough it, you know, dealing literally all of this shit of history and this mess mm-hmm. And so I, yeah, no, I think it works as a premise, I, but I think the premise is where it ends for me. It's too much on a page. There's too much on a page <laughs> for me, anyway. For yeah. for me to to find true enjoyment, I can find intellectual enjoyment, but I can find intellectual enjoyment in just about anything. So, <laughs> like I, we've like we've said, maybe the problem with this pod is you and I. could, I would enjoy talking with you about almost anything we read. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, that's that. Maybe that's part of the problem or something. But yeah, I know how I felt when I was reading it, and that was yeah. like, man, this is too much, too fast, and then it's over. That that story is like four pages long you know it's just yeah anyway so that's my make it stop now i'll i'll, I'll segue i don't want to demand or uh too much more airtime but i'll do my please continue just because i do want to be complimentary um i know i've been a little harsher on this episode but i think that when she writes about generational disconnect and the, the difference between these generations sansei refers to the second generation and i think it's nisei or nisei is the first generation of um, mm-hmm. Japanese people who lived is, in America. Is who's is first Issei. generation, okay. and then
1: okay, and then it's hold on, it's in the the so it's Issei, Nisei, and then Sansei.
0: Oh, Sansei is third then, okay. Or would it technically be third or second then? Because they're the first.
1: So yeah, so there's the immigrants, which is Issei, and then Nisei would be first generation, first, and, then and then Sansei is second okay. generation. Good,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that like the hello kitty piece i think clarified some ideas and feelings that i think are pretty prescient with the immigrant experience and i and there was a lot to take away for at least for me there and there was a lot of insight and i think some of the stories have dared and kind of touched upon this too and so yeah in the in the kiss of kitty there's a moment where they're at a festival And when they get there, there's no Japanese food, the quote says. No um, no nigiri, no teriyaki sticks, no tempura udon, no unagi, danburi, not even spam musubi. Okay, there are snow cones and strawberry shortcake, but no manju. I return with plates of chasu bao pizza. German sausage, and spaghetti, and she looks at me like, what? For the fifth time, we came too late. And then there are these girls It says there are two high school girls on stage. One is Latina, the other white. The Latina has on a blonde wig, but the Hakushin girl has real hair up in long pigtails. Both are dressed like baby dolls, dancing and singing over the mic. And then what language are they singing? I answer, Japanese. No, that's not Japanese, she smirks, which is a harsh condemnation, but a fair enough one for because uh, japan and the american mind has become maybe the most exoticized kind of misunderstood culture of of them all maybe i don't know maybe that's too grand a statement or something but mm-hmm. it, it the way that it's portrayed and depicted and stuff is very complex here and so i just found that moment to be i felt the, the twist the kind of torture of it to be fair they take it in stride in the story or in that reflection they're just kind of humored by it maybe a bit annoyed but it's Uh, Yeah, just seeing those girls up there, I can picture it in the stage kind of doing their dressing up like they're in an anime or something and wanting to and wanting to be welcoming wanting to embrace that stuff and doing their bad japanese like i i understand all the impulses to and it seems celebratory but i don't think it has to feel that way it feels kind of alien to the people there so i yeah that stuff really works i think when they're talking about that generational disconnect and the kind of detachments that happen those awkward moments i would love more of that i think those moments in the story have really worked for me so <laughs>
1: Yeah, I enjoyed that um that reading too because I was thinking of uh, she specifically mentions in that um yellow face, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. um almost it's it's the cultural appropriation, but that appropriation also leads to um loss of cultural identity where they they highlight this one aspect of the culture so much that Mm -hmm. the historical significance often is like kind of washed away and is overtaken, um, which is why the, the foods are, you know, no longer the Japanese foods and stuff like that. Um, So I thought that was really an interesting comment to make. And and I was like, "Hmm, yeah, and it's kind
0: of, you know, as the intercultural integration, assimilation starts to happen, things like that. It's what, what do you take? What do you leave? Which are some of the questions that the, um, museum story too and tried to I think propose and, and maybe address or talk about so yeah, yeah th- I think those ideas are all pretty fascinating
1: and they and they do come up in some meaningful ways in these two how about for your mm. please continue my um, please continue is that um, she has some beautiful turns of phrase that are rich in interesting insights and unique comparisons mm-hmm. um, I had said before that like the the literary aspects don't necessarily shine for me but As academic writing, academic writing does still incorporate, you know, metaphors because you have to have uh, things that you can compare these ideas to, especially if they are new ideas and um, they still provide a lot of great insights. So I pulled um, a quote from page 93. Your road trip, like every other account of a road trip, is an open and physical book. You retrace the steps of others, stand in the places of their discovery, loss, and misery. Books and museums curate stories, a version of events and truth. So here, um, as I mentioned, one the, the motif that I picked up on was the internment camps. So, of course, I pulled a quote about internment camps. Um, and yeah, it's okay. about perception here. It's a version of events and truth. And she is comparing it to this road trip, these internment camps, the experience of reliving this stuff to, actual phys- to an actual physical book where you can... Right. Um, traverse history you can find all this information you can actually like there's a physical thing there that's standing that you can actually touch like a physical book um, and I just thought that, that that kind of comparison is is a really apt comparison and it's just like one example of something that she uses like the, these comparisons to try to really uh, hone in on on the topics that she finds very important in her writing
0: yeah no and it's i don't know if the language has been jumping out to me but i think it could just be that my mind has been grappling with a lot of structural things and idea things and that Mm -hmm. maybe i haven't been as celebratory or maybe i haven't been as indulgent in my reading on the language stuff as i should have or could have been because that's yeah it's a great quote you pulled and i think yeah some of the character moments for like the doctor in the in the uh, the candy story kind of worked in that way too and yeah, no, I'm I'm hopeful too. I think the language, I mean, yeah, it's it all seems very well written, but anyway, can be buried under other things in my mind. All yeah, right, let's candy. move to per- Yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's move to predictions. We will end the part one of this book club with a big bold prediction for the second half. Um given the fragmentary nature of what we've talked about, you could predict literally anything for me. You could tell me the second (laughs) half of this is a novel or a novella. I'd be like, yeah, of course. Uh, we ended with a list of recipes with some light commentary. Some again, kind of immigrant style ideas, reflections about when, when foods meet and merge. And then there's a timeline of just a ton of events in Japanese and American and Japanese American history. So I, what's your prediction, Amanda?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, My prediction is that the second section, the sensibility section, will still incorporate the same basic theme of identity loss and the struggle for identity preservation. I think that she's going to continue with the idea that that identity is very important, that it's still being... lost in a lot of ways as the generations are um like becoming more and more i guess american um yeah, yeah. versus japanese american and i think that's something that she's she's really going to hone in on in the next section as well.
0: That's a good one, yeah. I think that's fair. My prediction is more i think specific but maybe justified at one point one of these stories has to take place in a japanese internment camp. I think she's kind of written around it so much. And and maybe it is that her interest here, kind of her intellectual and literary interest is more in the legacy than in the moment. And that, that'd be fair enough. Like, I'd, I don't think one of these has to be, but if I'm forced to make a prediction that it's such been such a common thread and it's such a omnipotent force kind of in the background of these people's lives, how it shapes them that, yeah, I think because the characters are so directly or indirectly affected I think at some point we'll end up in one in the time period itself. I know we had the museum story, which was similar and adjacent for sure. But yeah, I, my prediction is that we'll end up in a Japanese internment camp in a story. Yeah, that makes sense to me for sure. Yeah, yeah. I want, or, and again, I'm out of. She clearly has a lot of intellectual curiosities. I'm interested to see if she wants to write about that moment, or maybe she just doesn't want to. Which I would say fair enough too. I guess it doesn't. Yeah. Could be she's more interested in the um, the legacy kind of a thing. Any final thoughts on Sansei and sensibility so far? Uh, nope. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, it's been, well, a real mixed bag, but uh, as we've noted many times, I find the discussion very rich, so it's it's been good, fruitful ground for that, at least. A couple outro notes before we close out. We have been the Lightly Literary Podcast. Again, rate and review us on any podcast platform and find our social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, all one word. We have books coming up, so if you've enjoyed our discussions on this one, well, I guess, firstly, Book Club Part 2 will be out next Friday, so come back and check and see what we thought of the second half of this one. But if you want to know about the other books we've got coming up, we've have a few more picked out. The next three in order are The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, Wild in America, and that's Wild with an E at the end, uh, by David M. Friedman, and Tracks by Lewis Erdrich. And so those are the next three books we've got coming up. We thank you as always for listening in and joining us for the for some conversation. And as always, we'll see you between the pages.